When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. And I'm Brendan Weser. And this is the million-year-old Flying Sepulchre edition. Today, we're going to talk about a book set about 200 years in the future. And yet, in some aspects, given the sudden prominence of ChatGPT, the world depicted might be much closer. In Gareth L. Powell's Descendant Machine, sentient AIs are everywhere, but rather than dangerous and ready to take over the world, they're actually quite nice, and they need us as much as we need them. Powell is known for using intimate, character-driven science fiction to explore themes of identity, loss, and the human condition. He has written 10 published novels, two short story collections, three novellas, and a nonfiction writing guide. He's been described by Adrian Tchaikovsky as one of the masters of the genre. He has twice won the coveted British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Novel and has become one of the most shortlisted authors in the 50-year history of the award. He has also been twice shortlisted for the Locust Award, as well as being a finalist for the British Fantasy Society Award, the Seiyun Award in Japan, and the Canopus Award for Excellence in Interstellar Writing. His novels have been translated into numerous languages, and he has gained a dedicated following of readers around the world. Gareth joins us now from his home in Bristol. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you for having me on. Shall we say a belated congratulations on your marriage to fellow science fiction writer J. Diane Dotson? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're very pleased. I know. So exciting to have, you know, both of you with books or collections coming out uh, in the same year. It's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've had them pretty much coming out in consecutive months this year. Diane's came out in uh, March and mine's come out in April, so... That's lovely. Looking forward to seeing you do events together, which maybe you already have, and and uh, I missed it. Uh, we've done a few. We did. Uh, we've done joint panels at uh, Bristol Con a couple of years ago, and Chimera in Edinburgh last uh, June. Nice, nice. Well, I guess let's let's dive into the book. Maybe we can start talking about something that's features large in the story, the grand mechanism, and the plot really turns around that. So so maybe could you tell our listeners, what is the grand mechanism? Well, the grand mechanism is the, the mystery 
at the heart of the novel. It's the uh, the locked room. It's the um, uh, if you've ever seen a film called Ronan um, with that guy from Taxi Driver whose name temporarily escapes me. It's all about all these people trying to get hold of this briefcase and nobody actually knows what's in it, but everybody wants it. Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. Sorry, since I've had COVID, my ability to recall names has disappeared. Um, even Robert De Niro, I was like, oh, what's that guy? I can see his face and I know he's famous, but yeah. So uh, yeah, don't get COVID, kids. Well, you have an you have an excuse at least because I don't remember names and and I can't blame COVID. No, but mine's got noticeably and decidedly worse. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's it's the engine that kind of drives the plot because there's one faction wants to get at this thing and open it to see what's inside, and there's the other faction who thinks that could be a really really bad idea. And so for most of the book, we're not sure which which it is. It's like a Schrodinger's cat experiment of catastrophe. Right. And it sort of reminded me a little bit, and maybe this isn't, I'm sort of misapplying it, but this was an association I had was that it sort of reminded me of debates that we have about technology in, in general. And, and I guess maybe I'm thinking about chat GPT and maybe it doesn't really apply, but you know, we're all, everyone's so nervous about AI now it's happening so fast. And there's something about slow down, don't do it. Or, we have to go forward. This is good. And, and it sort of sounded a little like that. The people who want to open it are convinced that there's great things inside and there's a great future, particularly for the Jazat, uh, which are a sentient species that live in the solar system where the grand mechanism is located. They think that there's bountiful things inside, uh, or at least some of them do. There's a faction, right, as you said, and then there's a faction that doesn't. And I don't know, I kind of just thought of like, there's one group that maybe sounds like more like Luddites who are afraid of advancing forward and one that is, is going full ahead without fully understanding what, what they're running towards. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's like any scientific discovery, basically from when we first learned how to harness fire, we could use it to cook or we could use it to set people we didn't like on fire. So it's the beginning of 2001 Space Odyssey when the ape picks up that antelope thigh bone and, you know, immediately starts whacking stuff with it. Anything that we do can be used for good or bad. I mean, even, you know, you go into a bar and you get a drink, you can you can still hit somebody with the glass. So everything has inherent dangers and it's how we use them that determines whether they're a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it, it's not just atomic weaponry or AI, it's everything. Every tool can be used as a weapon and every weapon can turn on its user in some way. So from that point of view, it was, yeah, I was I was kind of with the society of, you, you, you described that there's the, the one lot who are scared of what's in there and the other lot who are using it as a political way and I, I kind of I, I, I got a bit um, satirical towards that with the uh, the, the way the kind of uh, the, the faction are appealing to nationalism to get the power they need to open this thing by promising sunlit up lands and making that great again and and all of this so it's like any uh, any scientific experiment um, any scientific knowledge that sentience and seems to be a process of just poking stuff to see what happens 
and you see chimpanzees do it and crows do it and it's just and um dolphins seem to do it you find something you don't understand you poke it and try and break it and see what it can do um and that's how we learn and that's what's basically going on on a massive scale in this story with this massive massive ancient machine that nobody knows what what it does but uh, everyone wants to poke it and see what happens Descendant Machine is framed as an investigative report about what transpires. So we kind of know we'll know the answer by the end of the to the grand what it what is the grand mechanism mm-hmm. because there's this report and it's going to tell us what happened. Mm-hmm. What I found really interesting was that it's being written or composed by the VSS Frontier Sheik, which is actually a sentient scout vessel. So it's an AI that puts the report together. But it decides that because humans find it easier to absorb a fictional account rather than a dry summation of events, it decides to put it in a kind of storytelling format, you know, narration from different points of view. And I thought that was really interesting that the AI decides, ah, these humans, they don't want just a dry, dry facts. They want a story. And then it goes off into, you know, basically a story. And I, I was kind of wondering what you were telling us that storytelling maybe illuminates truth better, or maybe it doesn't. And it's, it's just more persuasive and holds our attention better, but, but we can't rely on it necessarily for truth. Some of that and some of the fact we are, a, we are a narrative species. We are pretty much assumed language evolved when one Homo erectus wanted to tell the other one, you should have seen the size of that tiger that nearly ate me. So everything is, you know, our whole um, society, our history and everything is is stories. You know, every tradition we have, every social change we have, it's all got a story attached and it's all, we, we need a beginning, a middle and end. We need a why, we need a motivation in order to understand things. And if we just, as I say, get a dry recitation of facts, we seem to find it very hard to kind of put that into the right kind of understanding but if we get told a story then we get it we empathize with it we understand it so it's kind of like that and also I was writing a novel I wasn't writing a report so you know obviously I had to have a reason why it was written in novel format which is interesting to me I thought it was cheeky that it was a report written in novel format and I thought okay this is fun I can get behind this I'm curious, though, why did you even feel to go that route? Because you are writing a novel. The novel itself, you know, stands on its own without that, you know, introduction and that that ending of being a report. Why did you choose to do it that way? I was having fun. Um, I was messing around. And it just struck me as it would be a fun thing to do. It's been it's been about 50-50 well-received and not well-received as a framing device by reviewers. But I just thought it would be quite fun to have the, the ship at the beginning going, this is a report into why what we tried to do was a complete disaster. And so the reader sets out thinking, oh, how is this going to be a disaster? And it, you know, it sets some expectations. And I, I thought that would be a fun thing to do, just to have a sum up, uh, an introduction, and a, a summing up at the end in this kind of, you know, uh, Greek chorus kind of uh, effect. That you get an introduction to the characters, and then you get a what happened to them afterwards kind of thing going on. 
such a kitty cat. Like yes, it? yes, my cat wants to join the conversation. Ah, it's very welcome. There is a talking cat in in Stars and Bones, which is the uh, the um, other linked novel in this series. Right, also set the same universe. Yeah, so maybe, maybe he'd like to read that one. Oh, excellent! Good tip. I'll just have to teach him to read first, or just read read aloud to your cat. Be a dedicated cat owner. No, you're right. That's a great idea. I was going to say, Gareth. So you're one of the a writer who reads reviews because I know some writers just don't even go there. There, there are writers who read reviews, and then there are liars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, got it. Now yeah, I know the truth is coming out. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I can't believe there are. Uh, writers who don't read any reviews at all because I, I don't go on Goodreads or anything because that place is just not designed for writers really it's it's more for, for readers and, and they should be have a space where they can sound off and, and talk about things but I do read the ones in uh, like on, on, online blogs or review sites ones written by reviewers as opposed to ones written by readers if you see what I mean just to get an idea of how it's being received, because those are the reviews that probably my editor, my publisher, other editors and publishers will see and take note of. So I just, uh, you know, I like to see how it's being received in the industry, so to speak. So, uh, you know, if there's a review in SFX magazine, I'll read that one. But I won't go trawling through the uh, the comments on Amazon, because, you know, that can be... Uh, a bit of a like Forrest Gump's mum's box of chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. <laughs> I had a, a one star review on Stars and Bones because the package had arrived slightly damaged. So, oh my! So you know the the book's average gets dragged down because the the delivery guy dropped the package. So oh, that's terrible. It's yeah, it's just you know one of those things. And there are there are people out there who do try and game the review system as well which is uh dispiriting that people feel the need to kind of um try and increase their sales rank by badly reviewing the two books above them or something so it's it's um it's uh, yeah i don't tend to pay much attention to those but as i say the, the ones that are written by critics and uh, reputable review sites and stuff I'll, I'll take a look at because it's always good to get some feedback because otherwise i'm just writing in a vacuum and I don't think that's healthy because I'm trying to write stories that people enjoy and people want to read and want more of. So if I'm kind of disappearing up my own fundament, then I'm going to at some point lose the audience. So it's good to, to have a reality check now and again. Interesting. Yeah. Are there any particular review sites or reviewers that you find most helpful or most honest that you like to check? Uh, Locus are usually pretty brutally honest, and uh, as I mentioned, SFX when they when they review, they're pretty usually pretty good. But yeah, it's just the general kind of uh, review sites like that. I'll um, I'll take a look, and I take every review with a pinch of salt because if it's if it's a really hugely good review or if it's a bad review, I take them both with the same pinch of salt because um, you know it's everything is subjective. But, you know, if I try and find a kind of middle ground between the bad reviews and the good reviews, I can get some kind of rough idea of how well I did at getting my story across. And hopefully can use that when I come to write the next one. All right. I'm sorry we're still in this rabbit hole. But do you have a favorite review that you, or a favorite line from a review that has just stuck with you? 
Oh, yes, there was one. It was a website called the New York Review of Books, something like that. Um, I'd have to Google it. Yeah, the the line was, uh, when you have an imagination as large as Gareth Powell's, you have to paint or write, otherwise your head will explode. Oh, that's great. That's a good one. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, that just speaks to your vast abilities, not even just one specific book. It's like a tribute to your, your career. Yeah. The other reason we read reviews is because my publisher and I are searching through them for that one little sentence we can take out and add to the website under the book to say, you know, Locust Magazine says fun or whatever. We just find that one sentence to uh, excise and, and use to promote the book. So. Wonderful. Are we done talking about reviews, Brenda? I don't want to. No, 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 we are. I just, I, I love that question. It's a good question. Yeah, it is. It's great. No, it's great. It's fascinating. It's, I mean, every writer, I think, approaches it differently, too. I was wondering, Gareth, if you could talk about the relationship between, now we, I mentioned v, the VSS Frontier Sheik, that's the scout ship, the sentient ship with an AI, and Nicola Mafalda, who is the navigator for the Frontier Sheik, who is human. And they have quite an intimate relationship. I mean, and a very important one, very symbiotic relationship. I would be curious to hear more about how they're joined on a subconscious level, why, and their intimate relationship. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that the the grand mechanism was a kind of Schrodinger's cat. And these books do take place in a quantum universe. So the hyperspace that I've imagined is basically a quantum chaos. And it needs a conscious mind to force all the possibilities of all the possible destinations it could take you down into a single uh, solution. So it's like it's the idea of the observer effect in that reality the wave function of reality collapses down when observed consciously. So things aren't one thing or another until they're measured. So I've kind of taken that a step further and said it it needs you need a conscious mind to stare into the void to navigate. And the you know, it will reveal you know where you want to go and if you stare into it it will reveal the path and you will you will go there. But this doesn't work for artificial intelligences for story reasons. So um, the navigator and the AI are linked. Nicola has an implant in her head, which operates at a more or less subconscious level. Um, So she doesn't talk to the ship through it, but they can kind of sense each other's moods as well as overspill. But the ship can use that to interpret her observation of the quantum chaos so it can steer through allowing her to navigate so it's a little bit complicated and they do as i said they get overspill of each other's moods and thoughts and and uh, feelings of when one's in a bad mood the other's in a bad mood or they can sense when the other one's nearby and and so on so yeah it's an it's an interesting relationship and it's a tempestuous relationship because they don't always get on 
you know, at the beginning of the book, she's not very thrilled to see him because of things he had to do to to save her life in the past. So, yeah, it's interesting. But they're, they're kind of, they're bonded and they're kind of bonded for life because once this kind of bond is established, it, it's impossible for uh, a ship's computer to establish another bond in the same way because the, the kind of uh, the pathways and the, everything gets set and the empathic effect becomes very ingrained by the person that they're linked with so they're kind of bonded for life and it's um it makes for an interesting relationship because he can't fly without her and obviously she needs him to get around so that they're kind of dependent on each other well yeah and i thought there was something kind of optimistic about it i mean in the sense that so often the fear expressed in both science fiction and now in the real world is this idea of a AI kind of surpassing humans. And here you've conjectured, you know, a future where there's something so crucial, you know, traveling across the universe that an AI can't do by itself. It needs this ineffable quality that only a human can bring. This, this biological navigator is, is necessary to create this path through the quantum substrate and i i mean i don't know i found that reassuring even though it's not even though you made it up i was like well maybe that's true you know humans there's something we can do that can never be reproduced by artificially and artificial intelligence let's hope so to jump on that point i was curious if you were inspired at all by the conversations we're starting to have now or have been having around artificial general intelligence and how, you know, what we think of as AI in science fiction and what AI is in actuality, AI and machine learning is so kind of disconnected and far off. And the idea that your book in a lot of ways feels more of, of what we're, we're aiming towards, that there will be a, a human component that is working with, you know, an AI component that are benefiting each other because neither can can excel or kind of go to the next level without each other. And I didn't know if any of kind of those current day conversations were factoring into your thought process with this book. Kind of. I mean, obviously, this was written before all this kind of huge takeoff in um, AI talk and, and stuff hit the mainstream. We, I mean, we need to distinguish between things like chat GPT and artificial intelligence, which are two completely different things. Chat GPT is just like the, the predictive text on your mobile phone, just a bit more complicated that it will take, you know, it will scan through what it's being fed of the internet and predict sentences based on what you ask it to do. There's there's nobody home. It's not sitting there kind of thinking in any way. It's not con- consciously lying to you or doing any kind of it, it's just a very complicated predictive text and that's I find that really annoying I know people other writers who have lost jobs already because copyright um, companies are thinking oh we can save a bundle on copywriting so there are you know there are advertising now for people who can take AI in inverted comma generated articles and just kind of tidy them up for publication which I think is ridiculous because these things do contain mistakes. And after a while, if they're just based on what's on the internet, mistakes will repeat themselves and they'll be drawing from the same flawed well every time. And so it will just go 
perpetuate the same errors and so forth in it, into eternity. And, you know, after a while, who cares? We're going to get these kind of bland articles just about everything just being churned out. They'll be tweaked to get the maximum amount of engagement online. And eventually we're just going to have these AI machines writing articles to get clicks from other AI machines who will write articles <laughs> to get clicks from other AI machines. And it, it, it'll just be this automated click thing and humans will be bored out of our tiny minds. So, so that, that only annoys me on a professional level. Actual AI, actual thinking, conscious machine intelligence. I'm completely torn on. On one hand, I'm really, really excited about the idea on the other hand i'm really really frightened about the idea it depends what we do with it and the trouble with human beings is as i said earlier we're curious and we're a little bit impulsive and we tend to do stupid things when we invent something new so are we going to hook it up to the nuclear launch codes (laughs) to see what happens to automate it there's a line in um stars and bones where the um, explorers are walking across this landscape where it's been destroyed. This entire civilization destroyed itself. And one of the characters says, if you hook up an emergent neural net to your nuclear launch capabilities, you deserve everything you get. And so that kind of thing frightens me. But I think a lot of the fear about an superintelligent AI is that it will treat us the way we would treat it. Because as humans, we don't have an awesome record for treating less powerful civilizations or societies. We tend to conquer them or enslave them or or re-educate them or or what have you. And so there's a bit of a... I think when we look into AI, we see a kind of distorted mirror of ourselves and we think, oh my God, what if it does to us what we would do to it? So there is that. But then again, there's the perfectly rational argument that the AI might look around and see how chaotic we are and think I was stuck on a planet with chaotic heavily armed monkeys the best thing I can do for my survival is wipe them all out or it might be super intelligent and realize that cooperation and stewardship and compassion are the way forward because it realizes that in the whole of eternity Life is incredibly rare and precious. So who knows? It could go anyway. But in in the books, I'm I'm optimistic about it. In real life, I have moments when I'm not so much. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because in the books too, it's not necessarily humans that have come up with these AI. Like they have been, they've had guardrails put around them. So listening to you talk about it and then putting it in the context of the book, it's like, Huh. You can see how this society evolved into this uh, this co-partnership between humans and AI for travel, because there's also this other civilization that's kind of keeping tabs on on how humans are doing. And maybe that's part of the reason that the humans in the book also didn't take a more negative path. Yeah, the series starts with humanity triggering a nuclear war by accident and fortunately for us there's there's this alien intelligence who is observing and thinks this will be interesting 
but then humanity makes a, a, a breakthrough in or substrate technology, uh, hyperspace travel technology, where when a scientist manage, manages to teleport something across the, the width of his laboratory and the, the alien senses this, even even when the missiles are in the air and thinks, oh, hang on, maybe maybe uh, maybe they are worth looking you know, preserving. And so it, it, it rescues us and sets us adrift at these arcs and says, you know, you're, you're too dangerous. You can go in these arcs, you can travel around the universe, but you're not allowed to be in charge of another planet or biosphere because, frankly, you're not grown up enough yet. So we're put on the interstellar naughty step. But they still think there's something there that we could develop in an interesting way. Um, so, so the 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 big arcs that we've got, so the sentient arcs and and the smaller um, scout ships to which they give birth is the wrong word, but which they they create um, as splinters of themselves, weren't designed by humans and were given to humans specifically to look after humans. So there isn't that kind of conflict of interest because they're there to look after us and to keep us uh, keep us safe and stop us, you know, messing up the neighbourhood. So maybe if they'd been human-designed, things would be more fractious. I don't know. I mean, it is kind of nice, comforting to think that there maybe would be an alien species that would, like, get us out of our troubles, you know, and give us... Because, I mean, this is the setting of your two books, The Continuance. That's what you call this, right? The Continuance is the human culture and civilization continued on these arcs that the aliens have created. Yeah, I mean, it, it came from... I mean, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, so... When I was a teenager, it was very much like 83, 84, 85, height of the Cold War, when we were pretty much, you know, we were doing protect and survive uh, lessons at school. There were TV adverts about what to do about fallout and how to build a shelters and things. So it was really terrifying time to be 13 or 14. There was the, the comic 2000 AD I used to read, and I was like, we ain't never going to get to 2000. So, you know, it was pretty much accepted that we were going to get wiped out. Even watching Star Trek, great utopian sci-fi, but they took it as read that there would be a huge third world war before humanity could come together and form the Federation. So I was kind of like, it seems so inevitable in the 80s. And I would kind of lie in bed at night and think, if only there was some massively powerful alien that could come down and take all our nukes away and save the world. So when I when I was kind of thinking about this scenario and this, that was the kind of memory that kind of created the idea of this this super intelligent alien called the Benevolence, who who does come down and and uh, takes away all our toys. So it was kind of, yeah, that bit is kind of wish fulfillment of a a, a very scared 14-year-old from the 1980s. You have these different levels of, of, I guess, competency and wisdom. So there's the benevolence, which are this overarching alien uh, beings who who have essentially taken care of humans. And the humans then are having interactions with the Jazat who live in the solar system where the grand mechanism is, but the humans won't share their substrate travel technology with the Jazat because they feel they need to figure it out themselves. They're a younger species. So there's this sense that 
the older species is, the wiser it is. And, you know, without ruining the story or going into the details, there is a message at the end because there's this most ancient of all civilizations, which emerges at some point in the book, which turns out to be the one that is the biggest threat of all to the well-being of the universe. So it's like you'd think they'd be the wisest, but maybe it isn't like a clean trajectory from the oldest to the most powerful is the wisest. I, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of wonder if there is some message there thinking about knowledge, you know, the, the, the deeper knowledge doesn't necessarily translate into into wisdom, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, the, the reason the humans don't share the uh, the technology and come up with this kind of rubbish about you have to discover it yourself to earn it to take you humans didn't discover it themselves either they got it handed to them they're just being jerks and but also they think well if we give these guys this technology they might conceivably be a threat to us in the future whereas at the moment they're confined to their own solar system so there's kind of that going on in the background as well but all these kind of high-minded kind of star trekky prime directive slogans are really just to cover up the fact that humans are covering their own asses so love it I, and I, I want to say i love you know this is kind of a a little sidelight but at some point they encounter these creatures who are another sentient species and they have the greatest names i mean they're the funniest names allergic to seafood and uh drowning phobia and <laughs> dependent on alcohol and and it's explained that in their culture i mean i'm really just praising you for the cleverness of this but in their culture they their tradition is that when you enter adulthood you name yourself after your greatest weakness so you know someone's called never fully committed <laughs> so <laughs> i think that's great i think we should all do that and then we'll all know what someone's weakness is and it, it won't seem so bad anymore i guess i've read lots of um sci-fi where you know you have aliens with mighty names like death strider or killer of a thousand enemies and i thought let's do the complete opposite and have them name, name their greatest weakness. So, and, you know, I thought that was kind of therapeutically probably quite a healthy way of doing it. Yeah, I think it's great. Absolutely. And I think it just shows, too, it's another really powerful way to show how another culture could view naming. So you, you actually have done a lot to expand the world by just the simple naming convention that is is fun and entertaining, but also just says a lot about this particular society. So that's really cool. Both Rob and I were talking about this, that there are multiple elements of romance in the book, which you don't often find in kind of uh, this this type of story. Was there any particular reason why? Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's romance, there's anger, there are grudges, there's jealousy, there's avarice. It's because it's the whole human experience. I mean, we don't have, you know, whatever situation people are in, they're going to do people things. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the simplest um, answer. I mean, you know, from a storytelling point of view, I wanted this kind of... Um, I wanted the human protagonist Nicola to be invested in the fate of this uh, species so um, I had her think that she's in a relationship with one of them and then it turns out that maybe it's more than that or less than that and 
so, so part of it is character motivation, character conflict, and and uh, um, so on. But at the same time, you know, humans going to human, and it's it's the good things like romance, and love, and compassion that we balance against the bad stuff to make things worth fighting for and to make us who we are and to make us worth preserving. You do have this other character too, this brilliant, I guess he's a mathematician, very young Orlando Walden, who is one of the point of view characters. And every entry of his is framed as a letter to Ramona, his love. So it's always like, it always starts with this you know, I love you. I miss you. I know you're doing, I wonder if you're doing this. And it's very sweet, but it's very distinctive too, that even as he's grappling with uh, these questions of the, perhaps the future of the universe, he's pining for his Ramona. Yeah. And I think we all know Ramona's probably not reading any of them. either. <laughs> yeah. I wondered, yeah. I wondered like maybe she, she just met him once and doesn't even remember his name. Yeah. He, I mean, he has personality traits, and various fixations and, and social challenges. And I think he's he's kind of glommed onto this Ramona as some kind of life belt in the sea of humanity and is kind of hanging on to her and, and using her as his uh, lifeline back to back to reality and back to his old life. But um yeah, and he's 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 quite pompous and at the same time, he's very childish in his, his use of language and use of kind of sickly romantic um, phrases and, and declarations. So, yeah, he's uh, um, w- without wanting to reduce him to, to, to a stereotype or something, but he is a genius who, who finds interpersonal relationships somewhat baffling. Um and has has fallen head over heels in love with with Ramona, whose name I plucked from a, a Flying Burrito Brothers song. Thank you for having a main character who swears a lot. I am a frequent swearer or cusser, and it was very lovely to see that represented. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. All my books have main characters who swear a lot. It's uh, just kind of who I am, but um, yeah. That's fine. I mean, as I say, uh, I'm kind of with Stephen King here in that you reflect, you try to reflect the reality of language. So I try to reflect the way people talk and I swear a lot. So, But then I have characters who never swear and use perfect diction just to make a, a contrast. Yeah, I like swearing too. And that's one thing I do sometimes see in Goodreads reviews or wherever where people are like... I like the book, but there was too much swearing. And I'm always like, well, that's weird. Like, what are you going to do? Sorry. I wrote a trilogy called Akak Macak many years ago now. But a friend of mine told me that her son, he was about 13 at the time, had read the book and it was being passed around his class because the main character is a monkey who swears just like a, a stevedore and constantly stream of expletives so these 13 year olds were passing this round under their desk to kind of expand their vocabularies oh wonderful well good that's a that's a great public service yeah this has been really wonderful spending time with you thank you so much for coming on the show you're very welcome we've been talking to gareth l powell whose novel descendant machine came out in april from titan books i'm rob wolf and i'm brendan weser 
your host for this episode of New Books in Science Fiction. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show, leave a review, tell your friends, and then we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.